If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at The Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening. God bless. We're going to cover a chunk of Romans today, chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, grab one from the back or Google Romans chapter 7 because we're going to go through 13 verses and it's a lot and uh, you want to follow along. Um, I'll open by reading the main verses uh, from chapter 7, verses 4 through 6, and then I'll pray, and then we'll study verses 1 through 13 in depth. So first, let's read Romans 4 through 6 of chapter 7. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that the fruit we bore for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your, your letter to the Romans that we can study this morning. And we ask that you'd teach us the things that are still applicable to us today, and that you'd challenge us to know you more and to know you better. Lord, I pray that you'd empty me of me and that you'd fill me with your spirit and that my words this morning would be your words. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be looking at chapter 7 verses 1 through 13. It's a lot, and it's loaded with theology. Uh, we opened up with verses 4 through 6, which are the main idea, the bottom line up front for you army folks. And I put on a slide just sort of in my own words what, what I think this passage is all about. So if you look at the slide, my own words, because we know Jesus, our lives are not measured by our behavior. But because we know Jesus, we should live to honor and serve God. I'll say it again. Because we know Jesus, our lives are not measured by our behavior, but because we know Jesus, we should live to honor and serve God. That's it. Sermon complete. Go get your kids. No, I'm kidding. But that is the main point, and I want you to keep that main point in mind as we go through this study today. And before we dive into chapter 7, I want to zoom out for a second for some context. Because it's important to remember that this book, Romans, it's Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And it's a new church in Rome. And it was founded by Jews from Rome who had been in Jerusalem during the Pentecost, as described in Acts chapter 2, we studied about a year ago. And Pentecost, I had to kind of look it up to remember what exactly what, what Pentecost was. Um, it wasn't just one moment in time. It was a, a festival or a feast that would happen every year for the Jews. And it was also known as the Feast of Weeks, and it was an annual Jewish holiday which took place 50 days after Passover, and it was one of three main Jewish feasts that took place each year. So remembering back to uh, Jesus' death and resurrection, which aligned with Passover, then 50-ish days after Jesus' death and res resurrection was another gathering of Jews in Jerusalem for this Feast of Weeks or this Pentecost to celebrate the harvest of crops. And just try to imagine the buzz in Jerusalem during this particular Pentecost. 
In the last two months, Jesus had made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The hosannas and the palm branches and all that down the Mountain of Olives into Jerusalem. Then he'd been publicly uh, betrayed and arrested and crucified. And then three days later, he'd vanished from the tomb that they'd buried his body in. And throughout the next several weeks, he periodically appeared to his disciples. And then 40 days after his death and resurrection, he ascended to heaven. And all of this happened very publicly in and around Jerusalem in the two months before this particular Pentecost. So there's a lot of buzz um, leading up to this particular Feast of Weeks. And the founders of the church in Rome that Paul's writing to, some of them found themselves in Jerusalem during this tumultuous time, not because they were followers of Jesus yet, but because they were devout Jews and they were in town for this Pentecost and this Feast of Weeks. So let's go back to Acts chapter 2. If you want to turn there, um, you can, or I'll just read the, uh, the two main verses from Acts chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. He's talking about the disciples. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And some of you will go to this house in Jerusalem, this, this same house where the, the Pentecost happened. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Pretty miraculous and pretty inspiring. And then Peter stood up and he was you know, kind of the wayward disciple, but he stood up and empowered by the Holy Spirit, he gave one of the most important sermons in human history. It's recorded in Acts. He explained the gospel message in crystal clarity to this group of thousands of Jews who were in Jerusalem for the Pentecost. And at the end of his message, these Jews asked him, well, what should we do now? In 38, verse 38, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So among those 3,000 were some of these Roman Jews who became Christians and then went back to Rome and built up the Church of Rome, which Paul is now writing to in the book that we're studying today. And all that is to explain that these Roman Jews, um, Paul had never visited their church but he could relate to them, and he cared very deeply about them, as you can tell through his letter to them. And, and we know that Paul knows a few things about them. He knows that they're baby Christians with Jewish roots, like him. Um, these particular ones are living in the capital of the civilized world, the Roman Empire. And Paul can relate to these folks because he has a lot in common with the founders of this church in Rome. Formerly devout ethnic Jews, as we know Paul was, a very devout ethnic Jew, but also Roman citizens. And we know that Paul was a Roman citizen because he'd been born in the city of Tarsus, which was a, free, a Roman free city in the province of Cilicia. And so he was not only a Jew, but he was automatically a Roman citizen by birth. So he's got a lot in common with these folks. And he's got a burden to, to help them because he knows they don't have any Christian literature yet. There is no New Testament. Paul's letters to these churches is becoming the basis of their Christian theology. So really all they have is the experiences that they've had and the stories that they've heard about what uh, Jesus did and, uh, and, and what Jesus um, has done 
for, for, for them. So this is an important letter that Paul's writing. And I say all this for a little context to help with the first verse of chapter 7, where Paul explains the gospel with respect to traditional Jewish law. And he knows that the founders of the Church of Rome were like him, raised to know and follow the law. But now they were free of the penalties of the law. And they were looking for ways to live in the right way with respect to their new reality in God. So with all that background in mind, let's now look at what Paul is saying to the church in Rome in chapter 7. Verse 1, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. In this first verse, he acknowledges that his readers know the law. And to be clear, when Paul mentions the law, He's talking about what we know as the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Jews call it the Torah, and Torah, just for information, is the Hebrew word for instruction. And so when we talk about the law throughout this this text, that's what we're referring to as the first five books of the Bible. And these, these books, what the Jews know as the Torah, they contain hundreds of commands, 613 to be exact, 365 negative, so saying what you shouldn't do, and 248 positive, so saying what the Jews should do. And these 613 commands are the basis, the foundation for how the Jews are supposed to live in a right relationship with God. They're moral, they're social, and they're ceremonial. And they cover almost every aspect of of Jewish life. And faithful Jews, both in Bible times and today, those of you who are going to Israel, you'll see that that many folks in Israel still live uh, by these commands. They know that their relationship with God depends on their adherence to this law because this law was given to them as a covenant, their covenant with God. A covenant is not a word that we use very often, maybe at weddings, but we don't use it very often in contemporary English. So it's worth defining it for our common understanding. The word covenant comes from a Latin root, um, convenir, if you know Latin, meaning coming together for two or more parties to make a contract, agreeing on promises, stipulations, privileges, and responsibilities. And when God gave the law to the people of Israel through Moses, it became God's covenant with the Jews that was in exchange for his blessings that he was going to give them when they moved into the promised land. So it was a pretty simple deal, even though there were a lot of commands, but a pretty simple deal for the Jews. They needed to keep this law, and then they were going to get blessed. And if they kept the law, God was going to bless them, and the covenant would be maintained. And God really wanted to bless his people with the promised land and all the other things that, that he was going to give them. He just wanted their faithfulness in return. And we know that God was going to meet his end of the covenant. It was just up to the Jews to meet their end. And the Old Testament's filled with examples of how the Jews had highs and lows and struggles and failures to meet their end of the covenant. But this was and remains, this law was and remains the covenant that Jews understand themselves to have with God. So now back to Romans. Verses 2 and 3, Paul refers to another covenant, marriage, as an analogy of his covenant with the Jews. This analogy is probably a little easier for us to understand because we don't, aside from reading the Old Testament, we don't really have a familiarity with the law. Um, like these Jews that he's writing to, but we do understand the concept of marriage. Um, And perhaps Paul threw this in for the benefit of the Gentiles, because we know there were some Gentiles in the Roman church at this point. 
who also weren't raised under the uh, Jewish law. Either way, the marriage analogy is helpful uh, for us today as contemporary Americans. Let's see what Paul says in verses 2 and 3. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. In these verses, Paul outlines two paradigms, two situations where the law applies differently to a spouse based on which side of that situation they are on. And he refers to the covenant of marriage, which is applicable to both spouses while they're both alive, but not applicable once one of them dies. So in this analogy, he explains that a new covenant or a new marriage is possible and permissible and appropriate after the first marriage is cleanly terminated. So we can kind of understand that you know different laws and norms apply based on what side of the situation you're on. Paul goes back then to the the covenant with the Jews in verse 4, and he describes how Christians, new Christians, have a new covenant with God that is different and better than the Jewish covenant with God. In verse 4, he says, So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. In the second half of verse 4, he's transitioning now from his discussion about what the Jews should know about this covenant that they can have, to now how they should live in light of this new covenant that they can have with God through Jesus. And when he says bear fruit for God, it's reminiscent of another letter that Paul writes to the church in Galatia. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, when he says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then Paul says in Galatians, After that list, he says, against such things there is no law. We'll come back to Galatians 5 later because it's really an excellent application of how we should live in Christ. But first, I just want to drive home the concept of this new covenant in Christ. Verses 5 and 6, back to Romans chapter 7. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And this is Paul kind of slamming the gavel down, dropping the mic on the concept of the new covenant with God. In verse 5, he talks about our paradigm before Jesus where we were sinners and we were incapable of keeping God's commandments. But in verse 6, in Jesus and through His death as a penalty for our sins, the old covenant is null and void. And now, according to verse 6, we serve in a new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code or the law. So then Paul kind of follows back up for the Jews who are like, oh my gosh, I've been living under this law my whole life. What am I going to do now without this law to show me how to live? And he asks rhetorically in verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? You know, should we just throw it out? Is it, is it a bad thing? And then he answers his own question. He says, certainly not. The Torah, the law, it's still the Word of God, and it's still worth keeping as our first five books of our Bible. And especially the moral commands, like the Ten Commandments, they still have a lot of value for us to obey today. 
Paul, who, like Jesus, had been a teacher of the law, he defends the law in verse 7, and especially the Ten Commandments. In verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said you shall not covet. It's a really good example that Paul throws out. Because I think if we weren't given the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet, we probably wouldn't think about coveting as a sin. And uh, it's not a sin that we really are hard on ourselves or other people for for carrying their hearts, but it is something that's not helpful to us or to anyone else. Um, And Paul uses this as an example of the goodness of the Ten Commandments, the, the, the instructional purpose of the law. But while Paul defends the Ten Commandments and the law, he cautions the church in Rome that measuring their lives by the law will only condemn them to death without Jesus. Verse 8 through 11, But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death because of the penalties of not fulfilling it. Verse 11, For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So verses 10 and 11, Paul says, While the law was meant to be instructional for how to live in, in honor of God, the penalties for violating the law are death. But he says those no longer apply to us as Christians, which is a good thing. And in verses 12 and 13, he closes this thought by saying, So then, the law is holy, the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it is used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might be utterly sinful. In conclusion of this text in Romans, there's a lot there and it's heavy and And it's a lot to wade through. But in conclusion, Paul is saying that through Jesus, we have a new covenant with God. That's better than the old covenant between God and the Jews. And whereas the Jews, like Paul and the founders of the Roman church, were raised to know and adhere to the law as a means to be right with God, because of Jesus, we can be right with God regardless of how well we know and adhere to the law. And now we have the challenge, a new challenge, to as, as a new creation and in this new covenant with God, our challenge is to live for the Lord, not because we have to, but because we should. We have a new identity in Christ, and our lives should reflect what Jesus has done in our hearts. So that's our application, that's our challenge, to live for God because we are saved. So how do we do that in our daily lives? Let's go back to the analogy of marriage, which, as I said earlier, is a little bit easier for us to relate to than the covenants uh, that we described. And as you know from the weddings you've been to, the Bible of- often compares our relationship with God to a marriage. It's a nice picture of a union between two. I'll read part of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, if you want to turn there. Um, Ephesians chapter 5. Um, I know you're familiar with these verses from weddings, but 5, verse 25 and on, Paul tells the Ephesians, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, 
In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. This is verse 28. He who loves himself, or sorry, he who loves his wife loves himself. Verse 29. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their own body, just as Christ does the church. Verse 30. We are members of his body. 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Paul says that just like a marriage, our covenant with Jesus in verse 32 is a profound mystery. But similarly, our relationship with Jesus, like a marriage, the two become one flesh. And in our covenant with Jesus, we are saved. We are considered now children of God. And our purpose now becomes to bring glory to God so that others may know him. Our lives on this earth are no longer to do the right thing so we can be saved. We are saved. So now we should live well in order to honor God and serve God in the same way that Jesus did. That was a lot of scripture. We covered a lot in Acts and Romans and Galatians. It's all good. But Teva and Nikki told me last week, they said, don't bore us with theology. Tell us stories. We want war stories. But my wife always makes me promise to not tell any war stories up here. I did it once and paid the price. Um, But I'll tell you a skydiving story, which is probably even more exciting than my war stories. I used to skydive a lot. If you've ever been skydiving, if you're smart, you go up with two parachutes. One is your main parachute that you pack yourself generally, and the other is a reserve parachute that a certified rigger packs. And you don't really ever think much about the reserve parachute except that, you know, hopefully that it's there and that you can fall back on it if necessary. Well, I was, I was about 20, I think, and jumped at about 10,000 feet, went to open my parachute at about 2,500 feet. And when I threw out my main parachute, I heard the pop like normal that you're supposed to hear and felt the pull like normal. But I heard kind of a cracking, which was not normal. And I looked up and I saw a bunch of my lines. I don't know how many, but a bunch of them had broken on opening. And you have you know, a lot of parachute lines. And if you have a couple break, you can still fly your parachute in. But if you have a lot of them break, you need to test and see what kind of maneuverability you have with your parachute and make a quick decision. And I tested my maneuverability, and I had almost none, and my parachute was starting to collapse, and I was at about 2,000 feet. And so my decision was to try to fly that one in or to cut it away and go for my reserve. And I knew I had enough time to go for my reserve, so I cut away my main. There's a little lever you've got, you know, pulled it. My main flew away. Now I had nothing over me. And then I pulled my reserve, and in that split second, I was falling again, which was was scary. Um, that's when it got real because, uh, you know, in, in, until then I, I was sort of dependent on myself. And at that point, after I'd cut away my main and was waiting for my reserve to open, I was dependent on whoever had packed that reserve. I didn't even know who had packed it. I was hoping they did a good job and that it was actually there. And it was. It opened nicely and, and flew really well. And, and I landed safely. And in reflection, you know, was thankful that Uh, Everything worked out. I had a few more days on this earth. But the reason I tell that story is before my reserve opened, I was frantically working to save myself and dependent on my own packing of my main parachute. But after my reserve opened, I knew I was going to live. And now it's up to me how I'm going to live in light of that life-saving moment. 
And it's similar in our relationship with Jesus. Before we know Him, we're dependent on ourselves to be good enough. But He's there. Our works will fail us. So we don't need to wait and try to cut away ourselves in our own effort. We just need to go straight to Him because we know that He will be there for us. We know that He is our Savior. We know that He will rescue us. But then, after we've come to know Him, we have a responsibility to live out our lives in a way that honors Him as the giver of life. I'll tell one more story. This one is a war story, but it's not mine, Tanya. It's uh, from a movie called Saving Private Ryan. And I've shared this story in church before. I'll try not to get choked up like I did last time. But if you uh, remember at the end of the movie, if you haven't seen the movie, I'll tell you generally what happens up to this point is there's a, a family, the Ryan family, and they had three or four boys, and all of them were killed in D-Day, except for one, Private James Ryan, who's played by Matt Damon in the movie. And so this word got all the way up to the president, and he sent you know, orders through you know, the generals who were running the war. You go find that last Ryan brother, and you get him home to his family. Get him off the front lines. I want to make sure that you know, his, his mother has at least one of her sons that comes home from this war alive. So Tom Hanks' character, a guy named Captain Miller, he was a ranger, and he lands you know, on the beaches at D-Day, and they give him this mission after he fights his way up the beach. You know, they give him this new mission. You need to go find this guy, James Ryan. We don't know where he is, but just go figure it out, find him, get him off the front lines, and get him home to his family. And through a series of, you know, battles and, you know, great, great movie. I think it's mostly true. He finds Private Ryan, and they rescue him, and they pull him off the front lines. And in this very poignant scene at the end of the movie, Tom Hanks' character, Captain Miller, is mortally wounded. And as he's dying on this bridge, he, he grabs young Private Ryan, Tom Hanks' character grabs Matt Damon's character, and he grabs him, and he pulls him close, and he says, earn this. And sinks in with Private Ryan. And he goes at the end of the movie, and he visits Captain Miller's grave with his family. At this point, he's in his probably 70s or 80s. He's got his kids and his grandkids and his wife at his side. He asks his wife, tell me I've lived a good life. Tell me I've been a good man. Because he felt that obligation and that urgency to earn that gift that Captain Miller and his team had given him in World War II. And I feel like Jesus might have said something like that or thought something like that as he was on the cross. He'd given us the opportunity to live eternally. And if he had said something like, earn this, you know, it would have would have been appropriate because we have been given a lot and now it's our obligation to earn it and to live up to it. Uh, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 4, is one of my favorite verses. He tells the Ephesians, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. I'll read that again. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. We have been given so much, and in this new covenant with Jesus, 
we have so much to live for, and it's up to us to live a life worthy of that calling that we have received. So practically, what does that look like? What is that going to look like to us when we leave here this afternoon, when we go to work tomorrow, when we live out the rest of the week? My family, my wife especially, my friends, coworkers in the audience, you guys know that I am not a great example of how to practically live for God. I'll be honest. But I do know where to look for guidance. It's in this book. And the best thing we can do is we can look at the life of Jesus, who is the ultimate follower of God. The gospel books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they're full of stories of how Jesus walked on earth. He was free of sin. He was full of love. He was 100% obedient to God. And Paul's letters also offer many examples and practical applications of how we should live. I mentioned Galatians 5 earlier. I think it's worth turning to Galatians 5 as we wrap up here. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians 5. I'm going to read a few verses that will help us understand how in this new covenant with Jesus we can live for him. A couple books to the right of Romans. Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. And do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. He's referring to the law. Jump ahead to verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Verse 14. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Jump ahead to verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. There's a lot to know and apply in Galatians chapter 5, but I think the most important verse is the one we just read Galatians 5.14. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. There were 613 commands in the law, but this verse kind of sums it all up by focusing not so much on what not to do, but on what to do by saying, love your neighbor as yourself. The company Google, they always had this corporate motto, and their motto was, do no evil, which is pretty Solid motto, I guess, for a global company. But it's only half of, I think, what, what we should strive for. You know, do no evil implies that you're only not doing the wrong thing. They recently changed it to do the right thing, which I think is the more proactive, more positive spin on that. And it's sort of like verse 14, where you know, rather than saying all the things we shouldn't do, Verse 14 of Galatians 5 says, For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Those 613 commands summed up in one verse, love your neighbor as yourself. So in conclusion, let's go back to the main points that we outlined at the beginning. Uh, we can put that slide back up. Because we know Jesus, our lives are not measured by our behavior. But because we know Jesus, we should live to honor and serve God. The law was necessary to show the Jews how to live in the time before Jesus, but the law became a source of bondage for early Christians with Jewish roots. 
And now for us as contemporary Christians, we should still look back on the Old Testament for instruction, but we should remember that those commands, and even modern day laws, both federal and state, they won't save us. We are only saved through faith in Jesus. I'll say that again. We are only saved through our faith in Jesus, who paid the penalty for our sins. And our new mission as believers is to live in honor of that incredible gift. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your message to the Romans. We thank you for how it still has value to us today. You gave us the law to instruct us, but you gave us your son to save us. We thank you, Jesus, for living for us, for dying for us, for paying the price for our sins. And we ask, Lord, that no one would leave here unless they know you. For those of us who do know you, Lord, that we would leave here committed to living for you, to earning the calling that we have received through you. We ask these things in Jesus' name.